the text that we'll be especially looking at, but really the text we're looking at is the whole of Psalm 46. But I think a more accurate sermon title, and it's a very practical subject we're dealing with, and it's the believer's cure for fear. The believer's cure for fear. Now you'll know that in the Word of God very often we read these words and they're a command from God. Fear not. Fear not. It's a repeated command that we have in Isaiah. And it doesn't mean, as some people think, believers should never be afraid. There are things that we should be afraid of. In fact, fear is a healthy emotion, a God-given emotion. And it's something that is given by God to us to help us when danger approaches. What it does mean is fear shouldn't cripple us. Fear shouldn't prevent us from doing our duties. We are not to be controlled by fear. Jesus, talking to his disciples at one point, told them of the future that awaits all God's people to a greater or lesser extent. And he tells them there's going to be persecution. There's going to be people who come against them. And he says to them, have no fear of them, that is, those who may persecute you. But then he goes on to give two other commands concerning fear. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. Yes, I say, fear him. I wonder, as we read the Bible readings, if you notice this common theme of the readings, it could be summed up in this way. The world is a frightening place to live in. It always has been, and it always will be. Now, many things have changed over the years, but some haven't. Some things are just the same today as when Psalm 46 was first written. And we are frightened, if we've got any sense at all, because a world that seems so secure is being shaken. It was shaken in the days of the psalmist, and it's still being shaken. Shaken in a number of ways. It's physically shaken continually. We're aware of natural disasters that occur all over the world. Nearly 20 years ago, large parts of Turkey were devastated by earthquakes. 
and since then other parts of the world have experienced similar devastation. Anyone who lives through even a minor earthquake suddenly realizes that the earth is no longer as secure and solid as we thought it was. And likewise, we repeatedly hear about terrible floods that suddenly overwhelm large areas of the world, leaving cities and villages in a sea of mud and chaos. We've just heard of this recently in Pakistan, an, an incredible flood disaster. At other times, it can be volcanoes erupting or terrible fires burning for days, destroying miles of countryside. Even here in peaceful Cyprus, in the last 20 years, we have witnessed two horrendous fires. And when such things happen, it makes this world a frightening place. But it's not just natural disasters that shake the world and give us fearful thoughts. The world is shaken by the wickedness of man. This world is a beautiful place, but it's also an ugly place to live in. It's shaken and it's torn apart by wars. I remember only a few years ago, I was listening to the news and I heard about the start of the Iraqi war and I confess I just wept. Now that war is supposedly over and done with, but that land is still a nightmare to live in. Devastated by war. Afghanistan and even more recently the battle that is still raging in Ukraine. Now Cyprus may, in contrast, seem an earthly paradise, and yet the Middle East in general is unstable. It's a dangerous place to live in. The world is shaken by society's moral decline all over the world, almost without exception. There's a growth in crime. We read of armed robbery, drugs, drink-related crimes. The world is flooded by pornography and all the effects that has on man. There's child abuse, rape, murder, mass killings. A frightening breakdown of authority. When I grew up in the UK nearly 50 years ago, there was generally a law-abiding country. But what a dramatic change I have seen in the last years. And times when there's sudden eruptions of violence and widespread looting, something we'd never dreamt of when I was a boy. The world's shaken by economic instability. People are frightened by economic instability. Employment is no longer something you can take for granted. 
It's not just individuals that suffer bankruptcy. Nations do it. People used to trust in the pound, the euro, the dollar, stable currencies, and they are. They're more stable than others, but they're no longer as stable as they once were. And no doubt we could add other examples of how the world today is constantly being shaken. But in one sense, as I said, the world has always been like this. The people that this psalm was originally written for lived in the same world that we live in. It was written to encourage them, God's people, not to be frightened by the things that were happening all around Israel. For example, there were wars that had destroyed many of the surrounding nations. One of the great world powers had surrounded Israel and threatened to destroy them. Now, in such a situation, it's only natural to be afraid of what could happen. But even so, there was no need to be afraid, the psalmist tells us, because Israel could confidently say, God is our refuge. The writer of this psalm and the people he writes for had a relationship with this God. He was their God, and that's why he wrote, God is our refuge. Who is this God that he writes about? It is the God of Jacob, the same God that Jacob knew. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And the great point the writer is making is, if you know God, and if you know what he's ready to do for you, then it's going to make a great difference to the way you'll react to things that would normally frighten you. How should we believe? How should we who believe in God act when we see the world shaking about us in these different ways? How do we act when we see the church itself under attack? This is a reality in many parts of the world. We can see this in Turkey. We can see it all over the Middle East. Here in Cyprus, we're in conflict with an enemy, but it's an unseen enemy. It's the devil who's behind all these other things. And we must never forget that one of his great tactics is to try and fill us with fear. And I'm sure all of us know what fear can do. How should you respond whenever fear takes a grip of you? This is what this psalm is all about. And the psalmist sums it up also beautifully. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. And then he adds this wonderful conclusion. Therefore, we will not fear. We will not allow our fears to overcome us, 
to paralyze us. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, through its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, whatever the trouble, we have no need to be afraid because we can rely on God in every trouble. And every Christian is meant to enjoy that comfort. It's a wonderful privilege to know this. You can't escape the troubles of this world. None of us can escape from various troubles in this life because we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a world that's under the curse of Almighty God. And we must make up our minds to expect all kinds of troubles and to expect this till we die. And none of us knows what will happen tomorrow. You may have your ideas, but you may find tomorrow things are very different to what you had thought they would be. For each believer here this morning, this is the great comfort God promises to give you in all your troubles, whatever they may be. God is with you. God is with you. And not only is he with you, he promises that you can rely upon him to do three things for you. Firstly, he'll protect you. God is our refuge. That is, he's our place of safety. We're safe when God is with us. Then secondly, he'll give you strength, the strength that you need to face up to whatever trial or difficulty or danger you have to face. And thirdly, he'll help you in your trouble. The God of Jacob helps every believer in whatever trouble they may be. Now, the conclusion is obvious. If that's all true, therefore, we will not be afraid. Because God is with us, there is nothing to fear. I remember as a young boy being bullied. And my father got to hear of it. I didn't know at the time. But anyway, my father found out. And one day he said to me, come here. And he knew the bully was in the street. He says, right, let's go up to him. A different story altogether. He says, hit him. <laughs> well, my father was a minister, but he said, hit him. My father was there. It was all right. I hit him. And that was the end of it. I'm not saying I killed him or anything like that, but that was, that was the end of the bullying. Someone greater was beside me, but it's not just an earthly father that's beside us. It's a heaven. Almighty God who can do all things. Now, God wants us to use our imagination. 
Let's think about the most earth-shattering trouble that could come. Uh, and, and he gives us a picture. Imagine. The whole world is shaking. All that used to be seemed stable is falling around us. And the psalmist says, don't worry, there's no reason to fear. Think about what the psalmist says. Therefore, we will not fear. Now, if the most frightening thing that could happen shouldn't frighten us, nothing should frighten a believer. No trouble, small or great. Now, I, again, I'm not saying we never have any fear, we don't have any disquiet, but it shouldn't control us. That's the point. That's the point the psalm is making. But he doesn't stop there. This is such an important truth. He goes on and he takes a second step. And I want you to follow in the reading in chapter 46, verse 4 to 7. The psalmist wants us to make sure that we really understand this great truth. Now, one of the troubles with Christians is that we think we understand several things, and we don't really understand at all. We haven't a clue sometimes. And so the psalmist, as God's spokesman, wants to make sure that we realize there is no need for God's people to fear. It's important that we really grasp this truth. And to help us, the psalmist gives a very good illustration. One that was very simple to understand by the Israelites of his day. When the psalmist talks about the city of God, every Israelite knew he's talking about Jerusalem. And in a special sense, Jerusalem was a place where the God of Israel dwelt. Now, in a sense, it's equally true that God is everywhere. God stays everywhere. But, in a sense, a high sense, God was especially in Jerusalem. That was the place where God dwelt, the God of Israel. It was the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God specially chose it out of all the places of the world to be his holy place. Now, it was a place that had known troubles in the past, and yet those who lived there had a very good reason, particularly at that time, not to be afraid of anything that might happen. Because they knew that God Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And this truth brought great comfort they knew they were safe. They knew they were living in a fortress. They knew that nothing could harm them there. God was with them. They were perfectly safe. And in particular, the psalmist reminds us of two special provisions in that fortress, a natural and a spiritual one. And both these provisions are represented by the first part of verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There was an abundance of water. There was plenty water in two different ways. Firstly, there was an abundant supply in the physical sense. And that's very important if a city is under a siege and surrounded by hostile enemies. But secondly, spiritually, 
Water is a symbol of the spiritual blessings that flow from God's presence. God was there in the midst of them. And another reason they knew they were safe was God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. Now, other cities might fall, and many had fallen, but not to this point in time, Jerusalem, at this point in time. And it wasn't going to happen then either. They knew that God will help her at break of day. Now, I don't really know a great deal about fighting, but I have been told that in a besieged city, the most dangerous time of day was at the break of day. This was the time most suitable for the enemy to make their assault. But the most dangerous time is the time when God comes to give his help. Now notice the Samus word picture in verse 6. This picture Jerusalem's situation on a number of occasions. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. There were kingdoms that had literally been moved. They were just a desolation and anyone who was left was taken away captive. And the nations around Israel were at war. Some of these nations were taken into exile by their conquerors. And there were rumors that this would happen to Israel. There was a fear that Israel would be conquered and taken captive into exile. Then God uttered his voice. God speaks. This was his intervention. And in our Isaiah reading, we're given a very graphic illustration of that intervention. That intervention that took place in the days of King Hezekiah, the great power of the day, the king of Assyria, sent a great army to Jerusalem. He had already conquered and taken captive the surrounding nations. This army was sent to Jerusalem with this proud, imperious demand that they must surrender everything to him. Israel was in a very dangerous situation. Notice what God said and what he did. This is what he said. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. And then we read the awe-inspiring way in which he did this. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. Now, you'd think that should be enough. But the psalmist has more to say. He wants to make sure 
that we really understand, that we really get the benefit we should. From the conclusion he draws, therefore, we will not fear. He wants God's people, not just then, but in all the ages, to have the same confidence and comfort that he enjoys from believing this truth. And he wants us to confidently sing with him. This is something to sing about. This is a psalm. We sang it in uh, a, a paraphrase of Watts. You can also sing it in uh, one of the old Scottish versions, but it's something that we should rejoice to sing in. And he wants us to sing from the heart with our understanding. And to help us do this, he does two things. Firstly, he says, come and see the works of the Lord. And in the original, that word see is a very strong word. It's the word that is often translated in the, uh, the, the authorized version, behold. It means don't just look at it, but look at it carefully. Look very carefully at this. And it's not just any kind of desolation he wants us to look at. It's the desolations that war brings. These are not very pleasant things. But God wants us to look at them. He wants us to consider them. He wants us to say, well, what does this mean? Now, we in our day and age have got great reason to see something of this. The consequences of war are horrible. But the psalmist insists that we take a special note of these things. And by that I think he means more than just looking at observing what's happening in the world today. We're to read the accounts of war in the Bible. There's lots of accounts of different wars in the Bible. And we are to notice what they're given to teach. They're given to teach us that God is in control of these wars. That there's a purpose in all these wars. And if you study particularly the prophecies of Isaiah to Ezekiel, you'll see that God prophesies wars hundreds of years before they happen. So they're certain. They're certain. They're part of God's plan. Now, he's a good purpose and a purpose that brings blessing. Let me give you two obvious examples. First of all, war is a way whereby God punishes sin. The sin of a God-rejecting world. Now, I'm not saying that every war, you can sort of look and say it was this particular sin. God deals with the pride of nations. Some nations think they're very wonderful. And God's going to bring them down. Show them that they're not so wonderful. And it's a painful punishment. There's the injustices of crime and the wickedness. Many suffer. It makes people think. It humbles. And sometimes, thank God, it brings sinners to their senses. It makes people realize... There's something more to life than just having a good time. And in another sense, God chastens his people. Sad to say, but it's true 
God chastens his people and he uses very often the most wicked of people to do it. He raised up the Babylonians to do it to Israel. There was a time when God said, right, you've been thinking because I'm with you, nothing could ever happen to you. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave that temple, that temple that you've polluted with all your evils. I'm going to leave it and I'm going to let the king of Babylon come and do what he wants. And he did. And it was awful. God's people suffer in war just like everybody else. But God often uses this suffering to bring a blessing. Very often it's a way in which we enter into a deeper experience of walking with God. Learning to trust him in a way that we didn't use to trust him. And if there's one weakness that haunts the church in all ages is it's basically we pray far too little. We're too much concerned about the things of this life. There is spiritual pride. There is self-sufficiency. And war is a tremendous way of pricking that bubble of pride and self-sufficiency. But I want you to notice, and it's very important, and I think it's particularly encouraging and comforting to us at the time we're living in. God not only brings the desolations of war, he brings peace. And it's only God who can do that. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. Now wars are horrible but they help to highlight the wonder and the blessing of a peace that we don't deserve. And the note that we must focus on is war and peace are both under the sovereign control of God. And if we are looking to our political leaders to sort out the wars in this world, we're making a great mistake. They can't do it. They're neither the will nor the power to do it. It's God that's going to bring peace to all these situations that we think about. Now, the desolations that war brings, the blessings of peace, they're both the works of the Lord. And war itself is one of the greatest curses that there is. But it's not enough for us to just look at the works of the Lord. We've got to ask, well, what, what's God saying to us through these works? What's he saying to us through these terrible desolations that war brings? And to the wonder of peace when it comes. So the second thing we must do is we must listen to what God is saying. What is God saying to us this morning through this passage of Scripture? Listen to what he says to us in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Whenever you and I are fearful about anything, there are two things we must do immediately. First of all, be still. 
Stop being agitated by all the troubles. The troubles that are in the world, the troubles that may be in our family, troubles that be in society, church, your own life. Ask yourself this question. Why? Why am I agitated? Now, there are at least two reasons why you and I get agitated in times of trouble. I want you to listen carefully. Either you don't really believe that God is in control. And that's a sad thing, because there are many people who don't believe God's in control. There are many people in this world who think man has the last word. He doesn't. God is in control. But there's something that's even worse. And it's something that gets into Christians. And it's a terrible thing. And it's this. You don't like the way that God controls things. If things don't go your way, you don't like the way that God's controlling things. And both these reasons are sinful. And we've got to repent of such thoughts. Because God doesn't exist to do what you want him to do. God exists and does what he does for his own glory and honor. And so, he's saying, be still. Take your eyes off your troubles. Trust him. Stop being afraid. Believe that God is your refuge. And then we go that step further. Know, know that I am God. And that's a lesson I think we've all got to learn in greater measure. Know that I am God. In spite of our fears, God promises, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, when things seem to go wrong, when our plans don't work out, we think, God's work's ruined. But this is never the case, because his plans never fail. So often when things go badly wrong, God is doing something wonderful. If only we'd eyes to see. Praise God, we have many examples of this in the history of the early church. Think for a moment about the two events that were recorded in the passage we read in Acts. It starts off, the martyrdom of Stephen. What a loss to the church. How is the church going to cope without Stephen? And then almost immediately after we read Saul's persecution of the church. He was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women to prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What a wonderful thing that is. The result of the persecution was the gospel spreads everywhere. And this was exactly what God intended. This was God's way of reminding his people of their duty to reach into all Judea, to Samaria, and ultimately to the end of the earth. 
Yes, the church in Jerusalem had grown wonderfully since the day of Pentecost. But this was only the start. This wonderful gospel is not to be kept to Jerusalem. This is something that's got to be spread to the whole world as God has planned. And God wants us to trust him. In all that happens now, he fulfills his promise. I will be exalted. We can look at wicked men like Putin. And there's many other men. We can say the same of. And we can think, what, 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 what terrible power they've got. What are they doing? They're in God's hand. And that tragedy that we see working out in the Ukraine at this present moment, whatever we may think of it, and it's horrible, it is horrible, but God is in control of that tragedy. And God will bring peace when it comes. Only God, and he'll do it. And nothing can stop him. And that's a wonderful thing to recognize and to rejoice in. But as in every age, the church gets shaken in all sorts of unpleasant ways. But in every age, the voice of God comes down through the ages and tells us whatever our troubles, the Lord Almighty is with us. Do you believe that? The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, as I draw to a close, there's one vital question every one of us needs to consider. Are these words true for you? Can you honestly say the Lord is with me? The Lord is my fortress. I ask this because I know that it isn't true of everybody. I don't believe it's true of everybody in this building. Now, I'm not going to run around and say who I think isn't and who is. But God knows. And you probably know as well. Now, earlier in the psalm, we read the works. These words, come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. And he reminds us that war and peace are both under God's sovereign control. Now, why is it so important to believe this. The reason it's so important is that there is going to come a final shake-up one day. A shake-up such as this world has never known since the flood. The greatest shake-up ever. Jesus tells us there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming. And the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in power and great glory. And my friends, we may live to see that day. But oh, what a awful day that's going to be for those who are not ready to meet that God. Why has the world in every age been cursed by cruel wars? 
because war, if you like, is a visible symbol of God's wrath against the sin of man. And it's a token of an even eviler war that this world has ever known. And that is man at war with his God. And in all ages, man's greatest need is reconciliation with God. Man's war with God must end either with forgiveness and peace or it'll end in a judgment that we all deserve. Now what is wonderful that God makes war cease to the ends of the earth there's something even more wonderful. If we have been brought into a relationship with God, if we know that our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done, the result of that is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes from God, and only God can provide this peace. But how does he do it? And how can you and I receive this peace? Well, I want you, as we just close now, I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read through quickly verse 5 from verse 19 through to 6 verse 2. And these give the Apostle Paul's answer to these two important questions. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, 6 to 2. I want you to look at with your eye gate as well as hear it. The first answer is this. How can God provide reconciliation? God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and counting, not counting, not counting people's sins against them. Now that's an amazing thing. That's something only God can do. Not counting people's sins against them. Why shouldn't God count your sins and deal with them as you deserve? And the answer is, this is how he can do it. It's an amazing answer. God made him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is the only way that we can ever have peace with God. The way that he has provided. But how, what do we have to do? Well, it's interesting the Apostle Paul doesn't talk about, first of all, what we've got to do. He starts talking about himself. He says, by way of answer to this second question, he has committed to us, that is, the apostles, all the preachers of the gospel, all the witnesses of God throughout the ages. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And this is particularly true of gospel preachers. And every gospel preacher can say, as the Apostle Paul was able to say, we 
are therefore Christ's ambassadors. I'm an old man, but I come to you as an ambassador of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I've got a message from that Lord, that wonderful, gracious Lord. And he's telling me how I've got to do this. As the God, the great, glorious God, was making his appeal through us. And he's telling me I've got to do, I've got to imitate what he wants done. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Christ wants you to be reconciled to God. And he wants me to implore you to be reconciled to God. And you need to be reconciled to God. And he goes on, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive his grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I can promise you, if you call upon the Lord now, you will be saved. But I can't promise you, if you call upon him this afternoon, you'll be saved. Or tomorrow. You don't know if you've got this afternoon or tomorrow. And I plead with you, I plead with you, in Jesus' name, be reconciled. Because one day, if you're not, you'll wish you'd never been born. But the glory of the gospel is God has brought you here this morning, every one of you. And he's given you this further opportunity to call upon him. And he's promised that if you do, you'll be saved. You'll be reconciled to God. You'll have peace with God. You'll become a member of God's family. You'll become a child of the living God. Well, I wish I could force you to do what I'm saying, but I can't. But there's someone right at my side who can. And I pray that he'll do what I can't do. And there'll be some here who will cry. In fact, I'd say to you, please, don't leave this place in your sins. Call upon the Lord and seek him while you may be found. Now we're going to close by singing one of the great hymns of the faith. And can it be that I should gain? And I want just to read the last verse of that hymn. I think it's so wonderful. This is what believers can say. We're under condemnation, all of us, from birth. But if you're a believer, you can sing these words. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine.
Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. All of God, call upon him and you will be saved. Let's stand now and sing our closing hymn.